Hello and welcome to another podcast from Mike and Ali. What have you been up to, Mike? Well, I've been in America. I was in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, making a documentary about Francis Ford Coppola making his swan song, I guess, Megalopolis, which is a film he's been developing for almost 40 years. So that's pretty fascinating. That was five months and um, just me and a very small crew, three people. I can't wait to see it, both your film and his film. Yeah. Uh, I guess, should we wait until it's released so you can tell us a bit more about it? Or Well, we can talk just briefly about it. I mean, like I say, he's been developing the project for a long time, and the documentary will consist of um, my footage and also what Francis has archived himself Um you know, for example, he has footage from 35 years ago of Paul Newman mm. doing a table reading um, of the part that Adam Driver now plays in the film. Wow. And you have Al Pacino, you have Jude Law, Uma Thurman, all these people basically doing table readings for Francis um, in the archive stuff. And then um, whatever I shot, the 70 hours of footage, I'm told. Wow. So, um, I'm happy to say I'm not editing the film. <laughs> Uh, the, the film is being edited actually in Los Angeles, so I'll come and go. And I and I believe I, I think I'm do maybe one more trip and do some backup interviews with the likes of Lucas and Spielberg and people who've grown up in the in the film world of Francis Ford Coppola and Zoe Trope. And, and one of the nice things I did while I was making the documentary, I met someone I have had an email relationship with for some time a guy called Sam Wasson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we even talked about this. He wrote the fantastic book about the making of Chinatown. Yes. And he's just, he and um, a woman uh, curator, film curator, have just done this incredible book called uh, An Oral History of Hollywood. Wow. Which is literally from pre-talkies um, to the present tense. It's fascinating. And he's such a great writer. And he turned up on the set one day, and it turns out he's now doing a book on Zoetrope. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed Sammy. We were both very pleased finally to meet each other in person, you know, because I'd contributed to some piece he'd written on the Chateau Marmont, a ghost story that I'd experienced there. And, um, yeah, he's a lovely man and so articulate and someone I'm very happy to have in the documentary. So, you know, that was my life there was very simple. I stayed in a hotel kind of a charming rundown hotel great staff clearly the building's about to be knocked down so no one's upgrading it but had a rental car drove every day an hour and a half to whatever the location was or the studio atlanta has now become you know the the kind of film hub huge filmmaking center yeah marvel universe stuff is being shot there and yeah it's the new town for for film and they're building another studio now and so on so it's so busy with film film work um so i'd have this freeway drive at the beginning of my day and then a freeway drive and i did diaries while i was driving as Mm. well it was a kind of very simple life i was just focusing on getting my equipment down to an absolute minimal kind of level. I, I took two cameras. I took, in fact, I took four cameras because I took GoPros and all kinds of things. And then it became clear that in order to get the good stuff, I had to be ready as soon as, literally as soon as I got there. 
if the cameras weren't ready, I just shot it on my iPhone and was, again, amazed at the quality of the iPhone. But I got it down to, you know, one one camera and I, I designed a new rig for that. I, I used my fig rig to start off with, but I wanted to get it even smaller. And I was using a bunch of um, radio microphones mm -hmm. to uh, capture both Francis, what was on the camera and whatever, and then the very device we're looking at here, the little Zoom mm -hmm. um, four-track recorder, which is... Beautiful machine. It's a great piece of kit. So I was booming off that, using an old-fashioned clapperboard, all those kind of old techniques. And really, it was just a fascinating exercise in, you know, uh, being the most mobile and getting the most amount of information, both audio and... And audio, of course, is vitally important in a documentary and that was initially a bit of a struggle mm -hmm. <clears throat> because the range of a radio mic and so on and I was adapting um, the new Rode very cheap radio mics but adding Sennheiser you know Lavelier mics to those and that was working well so yeah it was fascinating I can imagine it, it must have been interesting to be sort of that small crew because I think you were through four or five people and in like sort of this atmosphere of an army of filmmakers mm. like that were maybe a little bit liberating also for you. It was amazing, the contrast, because Francis was shooting this um, at incredibly high resolution, obviously. Uh, he has plans to maybe release it, you know, in IMAX and so on. So uh, they were sometimes shooting, um, often always shooting two or three cameras, sometimes four. Wow. And with all the state-of-the-art equipment and lighting and... And I was running around with my like, low-budget kit, getting sh like amazing shots from the side. And uh, and the great thing was, you know, with Francis was he gave me total access. Every I could go anywhere Fantastic. I wanted, and I had a mic next to him like all the time. So it was a great experience. It took me a while to, to sort of come down when I got back because I got so used to the idea of working hard mm -hmm. you know like I, i'd get there and i'd be on my feet from the minute i hit the studio till when we wrapped because you can't hang around i mean no. you have to and you have to be ready to move and you're carrying still quite a heavy a piece of equipment but uh and training my crew who were not filmmakers very quickly and how to boom there's so many batteries to charge when, yeah when you go small can't you know? forget about the batteries and every piece of equipment, of course, has a different size battery. So it's, you, can't, you can't standardize anything. You mm -hmm. know? So labeling and, um, and then I had, you know, basically Kevin, uh, who had formerly worked for Francis, then became my IT guy. So, of course, the most important thing is logging this every night and then sending a copy to the editor in Los Angeles and then doing a backup so all of that stuff becomes vital. You yeah. cannot make a mistake on that level. No. Uh, or you're screwed. So, and we didn't touch wood, and we haven't yet anyway. Well, I can't wait to see both your film and his film, and I think we'll touch upon it in maybe more in depth in another podcast. But I wanted to talk about someone very close to you, because I haven't seen you basically in about five months. And unfortunately, when you were gone, I was scrolling through the news one day in February, and it said that uh, British actor Julian Sands was missing. And my first reaction, obviously, was think I thought of you, because I know that you and him were very close. 
And I was wondering if you could talk about him and mm. your relationship with him a little bit. Yeah, it was a real shock. I was literally driving on the freeway and um, Annie Stewart, who is my long-term producer in Los Angeles, called me up and said, you know, have you heard about Julian? He's missing. He's gone. He went for a walk on Mount Baldy, which is the highest mountain in California. And, it's, and certainly it's 40 miles away from Los Angeles. And he hasn't come back. And then uh, I just went, oh, wow. Well, if, you know, Julian knows how to take care of himself. And so myself and everybody else waited for the next week because they had really bad weather. The thing is that Julian got caught in a snowstorm a couple of years ago, I think in Peru, and had a near-death experience then, which he talked about, and survived. But he was with another climber. He's an incredibly experienced climber and one of the bravest people I've ever met. Anyway, so, the, you know, a week passed and I spoke to my dear, dear, dear friend Evgenia, who's his wife. And after a week, it became pretty clear, you know, but still people were, you know, because you hear these amazing stories. But this was, you know, Friday the 13th, he went missing yeah. in, in February and we're now in April. So, And since that time, the weather has been so appalling and he's under literally a mountain of snow somewhere on Mount Baldy. And I went to L.A. shortly afterwards, and uh, it was the week of the Oscars, or the week before the Oscars, and to talk to the editor, and I obviously went to visit Evgenia, and ironically, my hotel, which is a new hotel, for, I always used to stay at the Chateau Marmont, but things have somehow got a little bit strange and ugly there, and it's very expensive. Mm. So I stayed in a, a, a boutique hotel further down Sunset Boulevard, and my window had this spectacular view of Mount Baldy. So every morning I'd watch the sun coming up over Mount Baldy. And every night as it got, it was very cold, <clears throat> this snow-covered mountain. So Julian inserted himself into my life, actually, when I was casting Stormy Monday. And I remember he almost insisted on a meeting. I was staying in a what's called the Rock and Roll Hotel, the Hyatt Hotel on Sunset. The Riot House. Exactly. And I remember having a cup of tea with him. And, you know, he, he was a spectacularly beautiful Englishman with mm. his long blonde hair and very confident and, and totally assertive. I mean, he just basically said, you, you know, I'm the person you're looking for. You should put me in the film. He was not at all what I was looking for. Um, you know, Sean Bean ended up mm -hmm. doing that, that part. But that's how I met him. And then I met Evgenia. And over the next years in that circle of sort of expatriate English people, in, I was living in Los Angeles. I got to know him more and more. And then f finally I did, you know, I, I did cast him in the Browning version mm -hmm. where he's very, very, very good. And through that, I think from, probably from then on in, I made eight films with Julian. I think he's pretty much been in every film I've done since, maybe one, one or two exceptions. But and the last film um, I did, which was... Uh, the Hong Kong film Mother Tongue. Julian came and he did three weeks quarantine uh, for three days acting mm. without a complaint, without, a, you know, it was just wonderful. And the last photographs I have of us are um, on that film. And then he, the last time I saw him, he came here to, this, to my studio last summer. And we went and had a cup of tea. And we've been in contact ever since. But 
now one has to accept the fact that he's in another place. Yeah. Um, it's very funny because they haven't found the body. So for me, he's he's somewhere in the cosmos, um, and I haven't I haven't come to terms with that yet. It's a kind of limbo relationship. But he's one of my dearest, dearest friends, and it's uh, it is what it is. It's immensely sad, but at the same time, he was doing what he loved doing, which was being a bold boy. And, um, you know, he was very careful. And I can only assume something happened, which was, you know, force majeure, totally out of his control. I remember when we were doing suspension of disbelief, so this would be about 10, 11 years ago, uh, he didn't have an agent, and we got in touch with him directly about the film. And the fil- we were shooting, I think, in February in London, which is... Fantastic weather, basically. Mm -hmm. And his reply was, I don't care when, how many days, if it's for Mike, I'll come, no problem. Mm -hmm. It was very simple, very, very, like maybe two lines. And yeah, I thought it was really cool that you could get someone, you know, an actor to sort of come from the other side of the world, pretty much. I mean, Julian epitomized to me the kind of actor that I've always <clears throat> wanted to and love working with, which is you'd make a phone call. And if they're available, they'll they'll come and they don't ask what the part is. I mean, the classic example for Julian is time code. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because it was Julian um, and we had a you know very strong friendship and relationship and and I, I suggested a character to him and he went, no, I, you know what, I just want to play the masseur. Masseur. I remember. You know, um, and that'll give me license to go where I want and just give people massage, you know. And then watching him develop that character as a kind of floating... I can't actually, the thing that I used to love doing when I was an actor, which is just be in the space, reacting to what was going on, and then occasionally finding your moment. And one of the funniest moments in Time Code, which always galvanizes the audience into like hysterical laughter, is at the end when they're having the very serious conference with Mia Maestro and she's explaining about real-time filmmaking and so on. And he comes in late and he's creeping across the back of the room and she stops and stares at him and he's like, he's just caught like at that moment on two cameras and it's it's quite sublime, you know. He was... Uh, and the thing about Julian is, like, he was Julian Sands. He was never not Julian Sands. In you know, he's like one of those. He's like a film star. Yeah. You know, old school film star that you know kind of was that. I mean, we're going to talk later about um, Tar. And uh, you know, I worked with Mark Strong, and I didn't recognize him until I saw the credits. Oh God, that's Mark <laughs> with a very bad wig. Um, you know, I see he's playing a different character, but Julian never did. So I was kind of knew, I knew what I what I what I would get, and he would add to that. So yeah, with with uh, great sadness um, yeah. uh, when I realized I won't see him again, you know, just like. But in a sense, I will. I'll see him. <laughs> I'll see him very regularly, albeit in the medium of of uh, the moving picture. You know. Yeah, very distinguished looking actor. In actually, a lot of films. For some reason, when I was a kid. On Turkish TV, there would always be a movie that Julian Sands is in, like Arachnophobia or Film yeah. with a View. I mean, if you look him up on IMDb, he's made a lot of films. Yeah, he yeah. was always working. So, and also Czechoslovakia, or he went all around the. He really worked more than any other actor I know. Maybe Malkovich to an extent, and they were, of course, the greatest and greatest buddies of all time. Oh, okay. Yeah, 
Malkovich introduced him to Evgenia, his wife. Um, they were inseparable. And um, they met on the killing fields, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. While you were gone, there were some other sort of, you know, big losses. And I was wondering if we could just touch upon them. Uh, obviously, we talked about Godard before, mm. uh, you know, one of the most influential film directors there's ever been. Mm. The thing about Godard that's quite interesting is now, you know, because he chose to die. Oh. He killed himself. I mean, oh. no, he did assisted, you know. He did assisted suicide. Yeah. Okay. He said, you know, the time, um, chose, you know, lived in Switzerland. So, uh, so up to the end, Jean-Luc Godard controlled his own destiny in that respect. And I respect him so much for that. And he left behind this like prodigious body of work. And, um, the other day I was, I was tidying up my DVD shelves. I still have DVDs. I have vinyls. I have cassettes and I have uh, CDs, you know. And I, I'm one of these people, I didn't get rid of them. I just kept the equipment, you know. And I use iTunes and occasionally if I'm desperate, I'll use Spotify. You're analog. It's not just that. I like to, be, I like to choose what I'm listening to. Yeah, me too. I don't too. want someone to do a, um, a kind of assessment of who I am and then say, Mike, you'll like this. What am I? So anyway, I'm looking at my DVD shelf and it needs tidying up and there's an overflow. And I do, what I do do is cull. Mm. So I'll throw books away or give them away and, and, and share them with other people. But I have the sense that I don't want to add any more bulk. I just would like to edit and update. So I'm looking at my shelf and I have all the Goddard films and the Visconti and Fellini and Bunuel and Orson Welles and you know, Eric Romer. Eric Romer. Um, and I'm looking at them, I think, wow. Some of them, what I'm doing is, as, as, as appropriate, I'll, I'll upgrade to a Blu-ray because actually there is a huge difference in huge, quality. Huge, So whenever something comes out, I'll, I'll do that and then I'll maybe take the old versions either to Italy or something, I'll give them away or whatever. So I'm looking at it and just thinking, what a treasure trove. If I never saw another film, this would do me fine because I'll re-watch them all fairly regularly. There's enough of them. And then the same with my bookcases. I looked at those the other day and I thought, oh, they need to be weeded out. But Because at a certain point, you know, there is only so much time. Yeah, I've got enough stuff to reevaluate myself regularly by visiting Goddard or visiting a great writer or whatever. You're not one for the Kindle then? I would use Kindle if uh, if it was a question of having to be lightweight and going somewhere. Yeah, I would I don't want no, It doesn't bother you, okay. I'd rather have the book. I mean, you know, I'd rather have the book and get it off the shelf and have the pencil marks and all of that. Yeah, I, I quite like sort of the physical, you know, yeah. aspect of a book and like if I spend money on anything, it's actually books. Yeah. Like and I would I unfortunately I can't cull like you. Yeah. I sort of keep everything. But I think as you get older you can. I mean I'm looking at my art books and I've got a lot of art books and you go, okay, that photographer I kind of fell for it in the eighties, but hasn't really lasted that well. And what I do is I take those art books out and coffee table them in a sense mm. and and make myself go through them because they, it's so easy just to have them on the shelf and you have to remind yourself they are books, you need to look at them, particularly art books, which are full of, obviously, illustrations. And um, also a great musician passed away while you were gone. And Jeff. Yes, mm -hmm. a musician that you filmed, mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Beck. 
Yeah, I mean, Jeff Beck, extraordinary musician. And I brought him together with Tom Jones and Van Morrison and various people for the blues documentary that Scorsese produced. And we did this three-day jam session at Abbey Road, which had always been like a fantasy of mine, open mic, you know, um, old like in the old days. Mm. So You were all in the same room, all like the playing same live. Room, no booths, no yeah. separations. Everybody, my rule was if you can't hear somebody, that means they're, you're playing, not that they're too quiet, you're playing too loud. <laughs> so I made it acoustically everybody come down. And the recordings are amazing. Sadly, the Van Morrison recordings, um, Van Morrison being Van Morrison, loved them, wanted to then record with the band I'd put together, but at the same time, a month later, suddenly changed his mind and refused to give permission for us to release the tracks on CD, however they exist in the film, which is a real shame. I have my own copies of these wonderful mm. jam sessions with, uh, with him. I mean, the band was amazing, absolutely amazing. Had Peter King... Oh, yeah. On alto. Sax player, right? Just phenomenal, sort yeah. of Charlie Parker-inspired yeah. saxophonist, who I brought in because I knew he was a great blues player. So anyway, Jeff was very much part of that, and that was a very intense period of filming. And then I never heard from him again, but everyone sort of said, that's, that's Jeff, you know. Yeah, I think what sort of... Obviously, I'd heard his name, mm. you know, throughout, but it's interesting that, you know, he was considered one of the greatest guitar players ever, but he always did his own thing. You know, I think he was in the Yardbirds for a bit, but then mm -hmm. he just always did his own thing. And some people say maybe that hurt his career a little bit. Not that he, I don't think he really cared about his career, but... He was obsessed with uh, hot rods, you know. Oh, yeah. He had a massive collection, apparently, of, of hot rod cars on his estate. His hands were always like, his fingers <laughs> were like spanners and always ingrained with oil. Collaborated with in short periods with lots of lots of wonderful like Stevie Wonder and people but was very a little bit eccentric and his own man so yeah I mean it left a huge legacy anyway you know? yeah and he was an extraordinary musician big loss big mm, loss big loss yeah and very young so in one of our previous podcasts we talked about K-drama mm -hmm. with you and I'm just wondering if you're watching any recently anything interesting well you know harping back a little bit to what I've just said about, you know, culturally revisiting DVDs and, you know, our, our classic films and so on, which is not to say I don't watch selected moments of what's out there now. I mean, we're going to talk about that, too, about the film yeah. Tar. But, you know, I was away in, in Atlanta with my iPad, and so I was watching stuff when I had time. And I found, in fact, that what I was, again, I was pretty much just watching K-drama. Mm. So my obsession and love of K-drama has continued. My main source is Netflix, and I would say I've checked out pretty much every single K-drama. Um, and it's quite confusing. Sometimes I go, have I already, did I watch this? And you go, and I go, no, that was, you got as far as episode four, and then you gave up because it was pretty dopey. So like all dramas, K-drama has a small percentage of, like, brilliance, and then, like everything else, a high percentage of just the banal, dopey, sort of run-of-the-mill stuff. But when it's good to me, it's like second to none. Mm. And so I've been I've revisited uh, a couple of K dramas and watched some new ones as they came out. And I tell people about it. And I wanted to share in this podcast and I'd be a bit more specific about uh, um, four or five in particular that I think are so outstanding. And I would be as bold as to say 
as good as anything on television, including American, certainly including American and British television, which I find harder and harder to watch because same here. I feel like it's so unoriginal, and and the acting is a certain style of acting has developed in long form television, which is like you say technically it's good, but it seems. I just can't relate to it. No, I agree with you. I found, aside from HBO shows, which yeah. I'm unfortunately behind on, yeah. um, I find it hard to watch sort of long-form TV, yeah. especially English-speaking long-form TV, I'll put it that way. Everybody's sort of self-consciously unattractive in the sense of, you know, that everybody wants to somehow be real. But that's a television version of real. Yeah. yeah. And... Everybody has to be right on. So the writing is very... So it's almost like, why don't you just go and do a bunch of documentaries about the subjects you're talking about? Because this is actually drama, meaning it's not real. So you're not really making a point, you know. And documentaries are very valid, you know, social, you know, significant sort of genre right now. So, And I always feel like I'm watching bad documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the kind of PC, that's what people call woke or whatever, is, is so kind of all enveloping now that you, you know that in the writing sessions things have been nixed and choices have been made so that this has now come out of the sausage machine uh, apparently with the right mixture of correct correctness or whatever. So that I find just tedious. I, I, you know, that's not entertaining to me, and I'm not moved by it. So I return to K-drama. Yeah. I mean, it's just so calculated. That's sort of what bothers me about it. Yeah. Uh, everything, as you say, it's like, it's algorithmic almost, which I think Netflix kind of uses algorithms yeah, to sort of, course of they do. design well, shows. Well, everybody does. You know. Everybody does, and The yeah. BBC certainly does. You know, whether they literally have uh, the machines to do it or that they're the... That is just in their meeting rooms where they're all terrified. I mean, I had a meeting in um, L.A., two meetings, one with Amazon and one with Fox Searchlight. And my impression was that everyone was just terrified of losing their job. Mm-hmm. So nobody's going to make a decision about doing anything that's even remotely off the beaten track for them. You know. So, um, okay, so here's my list. So what I'm re-watching right now, and I've watched elements of, of these episodes Sometimes when I can't find anything, so I'll just watch one episode because it's so good. Okay. So this is called My Mister. I, I think I've heard about this one. You've told me, I think. Okay. And the, my two top picks here, one's called My Mister and the other one is called My Liberation Notes. And what they have in common is a writer who is a woman called Park Hae-young. Okay. And she's brilliant. So both these dramas are slow and they deal with very complex relationships and interrelationships, office politics and traveling on either the train, the subway with other people, time to think about things, who's on the train, the complexity of family life in South Korea, the huge elements of uh, misogyny and um, the sort of me too and but not with a sledgehammer just with this is part of our life and they're just indescribably beautiful way of writing about relationships in a way that nobody else is doing and certainly not anyone that i see in terms of american or british writing superbly acted 
and beautifully, beautifully photographed in a not particularly demonstrative or flashy way, just what is appropriate. I got so used to the kind of style of, of K-drama now where they'll use a ballad with words, sometimes in English even, or bits of it in English, and as a thematic idea, always very good writing, but not at all your conventional way of using film score. So My Mister stars a young woman called Ayu, I-U. Her real name is Lee Ji-An. She is one of the biggest music recording stars in South Korea, and she's a songwriter and has latterly become an actress. And um, she's in two or three films now. And in one K-drama, I think called The Producer or Producers, she plays a K-pop star mm -hmm. who's being badly treated by her manager and is a bit of a rebel. But in this, she plays a troubled young woman who is has the responsibility of caring for her grandmother, who is a deaf, disabled woman. And she's being blackmailed by a thug because a couple of years back, she killed the thug's father, who was a money lender, who was beating up the grandmother. And so, so if, you know, Korean drama is very, very violent. I mean, you'll see a woman having literally getting the shit kicked out of her in a way that you would only see with a man in Western drama. There's three or four scenes where she is literally very badly beaten up by mm -hmm. this young thug who's extorting money from her. The other main character is a structural engineer who works in an architecture firm whose wife is having an affair with his boss and the boss is trying to get him fired. And so the boss hires IU, the young woman, as a temp in the office, gets her to steal the guy's phone and plants a device on it so she can eavesdrop on him at all times. That's the, that's the device. So in the course of the next 20 episodes, she falls in love with him mm. because she starts to hear how miserable his life is and what a bastard the guy that she's working for is. And she slowly starts to subvert the process because she's in control. So you have a, a, a scenario where this exceptionally talented young woman who is such a good actress and she's very beautiful, but there's no way that she's glamorous in this, where she got an extra job as a dishwasher and she's got her headphones in and she's listening to a marital row between this guy mm. and his wife who's being unfaithful. The other, and these are complex, this is like Dostoevsky, where every great Korean drama has a sidebar, which is the family. So he's part of a very strong family of three brothers and a mother and an ex-wife, and a so-and-so, so-and-so, and they drink and play football together twice a week. And so within then, there are all these sub-dramas going on. It's um, a lot of characters. A hell of a lot of characters, and then all the characters in the office. Yeah. And then the rivalry in the office, and then the young girl with the thug, and, you know, her being blackmailed, and then her friend who's an IT expert who can subvert the IT so the writer, Park Hae Young, mm -hmm. is just absolutely brilliant at keeping all these balls more or less up in the air and interesting over this incredibly long period of drama. That's my mister. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with that drama. Just And as I say, I'm now re-watching it. And then I, um, I think last year, this new one came out, which wasn't so successful, called My Liberation Notes. And again, family-based situation with two sisters and a brother 
none of whom have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, who live on the outskirts of Seoul. So their commute time is so long that they can't have a relationship. <laughs> and so they live with their parents. Who, and the dad has a small holding. He's just like a mini farmer. He also makes kitchen furniture. And then they have a lodger who's an alcoholic, who's a mystery man called Mr. Goo. Clearly, he comes from an interesting background. Clearly, he's hiding from something. Oh, yeah. So Mr. Goo lives in a little cottage opposite where they are. And the main sister, who's just, uh, she, her name is Kim Ji-won. She is incredible. And the Mr. Goo is Son Suk-koo, an incredible actor. And the t- it's a romance between the two of them that takes forever before they even hold hands. And I have the feeling, I have to say, you know, Leaving Las Vegas was very influential film and career. And there's a mm. bit of Leaving Las Vegas in this because she is a non judgmental woman who decides to go with him and accept the fact that he's an alcoholic and actually will buy him up. She buys him alcohol. Is, sorry for interrupting. Is, is the alcoholism handled as realistically as it was in leaving Las Vegas? It's, it's Korean. Okay. He just, you know, he, he's not trying to kill himself. Right. He just drinks. Okay. Um, and then slowly we find out what his troubles are, you know. And he has a troubled past, which she then, and then they they split. He just vanishes, and then, you know, they find each other again. It's one of those things, again, this wonderful writer, Park Hae-young, has the ability to create these tapestries that involve all the elements without sacrificing, like when we, you know, we'll talk about Tar, for example, mm. you know, which I really liked. But I, I did feel that. that at the same time, at the second half of the film, you know, the characters were assassinated in a sense uh, to the to you know to the story because the story felt they had to move on in a certain way she doesn't do this in k drama she basically kind of manages just to keep the interesting fabric going so it's almost like when you tune in again on the many many episodes again you just kind of go oh i'm back with the family and it feels that's like okay i'm very so comfortable watching this drama very slow super slow um but the acting is so so good and they are both the actors in both of these films my mister and my liberation notes i cannot take my eyes off them i I want to work with them i guess it's always about the writing though because isn't it because i mean i've watched recently quite a few shows or films where you know they introduce a plot element and then or a character and you want to know more about that character and just nothing happens or certain Mm -hmm resolutions just aren't handled and it just feels lazy for example and i mean i've seen a little bit of sort of korean drama and i can i think i'm imagining the style that's used in these shows is all you know the the actresses are all lit in a beauty shot kind of way or no not in these two not in these two not in these two that's what i love about them Mm. and i struggle to find who the DP on my liberation notes were, because it's very kind of, it's almost like an Italian realist avant-garde film in some ways. Wow, okay. But the DP in my mystery is called Choi Yun-man. Uh, I actually last year mentioned how great the cinematography was and somebody came back and said, oh, he was so pleased that you liked his work. You know, you're never aware of the lighting and the, on the makeup. And given that um, 
IU, who is literally a mega, mega star up there with Blackpink and, and BTS. Maybe the most successful single um, writer, song, singer, you know. Wow. There is no sense of glowing skin and she gets beaten up all the time. I couldn't see that kind of sort of family violence uh, portrayed in sort of English speaking mainstream TV, you know. No. I mean, there'll be. Obviously, there'll be sort of great TV shows or whatever who sort of want to explore that. But mm. in a lot of mainstream stuff, you wouldn't see that. Well, that's because the difference in their cultures is there is a lot of violence in Korea. So mm. there's a lot of marital violence. There's a lot of hitting of people. There's a lot of slapping of people if you feel they've been, you know, so slapping of children. Um, um, a lot of misogynistic violence, you know, uh, really a lot. So that's part of their if you like, they and you look at uh, Korean mainstream films. It's it, yeah, you know, rape is a common theme. You know, um, and it was always said that rape was a metaphor for the politics of South Korea. Until the feminists sort of said, well, maybe time to move on to another metaphor. You know, because you're now just doing it because you can in a film. You know, I don't think you could get away with those things in the same way in an American or a British drama. Um, so those are the first two. Then I've got a couple of others which are just mm -hmm. worth mentioning. So there's one which is the biggest hit a couple of months ago called The Glory. Mm -hmm. And this was very topical because um, bullying in school is a huge topic in both Japan and South Korea. And so now every day there's another story about a famous pop star who's now outed by a former classmate who said, this person bullied me. They're made to usually then leave the group and apologize and maybe pay some money as well. So it's an everyday story now. So I mean, old boy comes to mind if you well, remember. Revenge. Yeah, you know, ma major trope in, yeah. in Korean drama, right? So, so the writer of the glory now again a woman, Kim Yoon Suk. Now she's very very famous because she wrote uh, Mr. Sunshine, one of the most successful K dramas of all yeah. time, which deals with the relationship between Japan historically and South Korea and the invasion of South Korea by Japan in 1905. And that was a massive, massive series. And it's very good, but it's very fantasy-based. There's, you know, there's 20 coincidences per episode, none of which are really appropriately believable. But it's very good and it's very entertaining and it's very historical. So it was a huge hit. So she's she's big-time writer. She's very famous. So she then wrote a thing called The Glory, which is about a woman who's so viciously bullied at school, like she's tortured with a curling tong iron. And wow. Her whole body is scarred, and it's a bunch of rich kids. She grows up and decides to get her revenge, and she isolates every one of her torturers, and she basically destroys them one by one in this thing called The Glory. That's really was, intense. It's very intense and it's very violent. You're talking about violence towards women. This is very intense. And it's woman-on-woman -woman violence too. It stars um, one of my favorite South Korean actresses, a woman called Lim Ji-yong. Um, forgive anyone Korean, forgive my pronunciation, but she is just fabulous. And she plays the bad girl in The Glory. But she was in one of my favorite films called The Treacherous, which is an erotic period film. Incredible. Oh, check it out. And another, another film called Obsessed. And she's quite wonderful. She's uh, comedic. She's very beautiful. She's very sharp. And 
alternative. She's great. So I watched it because of her, because she's so she's so watchable. But The Glory, very similar to you know Mr. Sunshine, is not is not in the same kind of genre at all as my Mr. or my Liberation Notes. Again, just massive coincidences, and you just go along. For, it's an entertainment, but very vicious and very kind of disturbing in many ways. And it has raised so many issues in the press in South Korea because the hot topic of you know bullying in the past and in the present. So. There's that one. Less interesting to me, but I did watch all of it. Then we have two more, three more, two more. Okay, one called Somebody. Somebody. Now, Somebody is an erotic thriller, which is very unusual for Netflix because no one ever gets erotic anymore. They, if they're ever a bed scene... They, I was thinking about that the other day. Not they, they eroticism have, in general, but they, just why... I mean, we're handling everything else, but no one is sort of handling... I always think about the 90s when they were making sort of mainstream erotic thrillers. And this is, you know, part of our lives and something very important. Mm. Why is no one making adult, like, dramas with sort of, that handle sort of eroticism anymore? Okay, uh, I think I'd come up with the answer for that. Um, I think it's over. Okay. I think the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein, the historical mountain of bad behavior from men towards women, the analysis of the male gaze, the dominance of male filmmakers, etc., etc. Regardless of how great any of those films were, I do think now, and now you have, let's say, the, um, you know, the coordinator, the sex coordinator on the set. Intimacy coordinator. Intimacy coordinator because of the amount of abuse and the need to have that person, well, now in every situation, but, you know... A lot of actors say in certain situations that would be useful, but not every time. Because actors also want to be spontaneous too. I just think we're going to go through a period now where we explored nudity. And Goddard, bless him, you know, once said that, you know, you can't show sex and you can't show death because you know you're watching something that is fake because mm. the camera's there. So I think it's okay to go back to, let's say, a Victorian repressed eroticism which i think is now more pertinent and potentially much more powerful than showing nakedness i don't mean maybe like sort of love scenes or something i don't think eroticism in general is being handled in okay a pertinent but in a in a good way hmm. I, I see what you're saying and then i agree with you i think ha- the handling of the erotic situation in you know needs to be reassessed mm. and in some cases is being arrested. So in Somebody, which is a writer-director called Jung, Jung Ji-Woon, um, it's a kind of very dark story about a serial killer and, an, let's say, an autistic social influencer who you know is a brilliant tech person. It's very sci-fi in the sense that you know you're looking at a very heightened reality of a certain part of a culture and it's about the intense erotic relationship between the killer and this young girl Mm. Um, and they found this girl she's never really been in anything before and she is kind of fabulous and it's very sexy and there is nudity which is unusual for korean but it's very good um i would say that they know how to film this and they're they're, the director writer director is very strong has a very clear point of view quite young they're all quite young and it's pretty damn good. And she knows he's a killer? Yeah, yeah. And also, this kind of really perverse scene between the killer 
and one of her friends, who's a very beautiful but in a wheelchair, and wants to have sex with him, <laughs> and they have wheelchair sex, and it's just like, and then he just leaves her in the middle of an abandoned building site in the wheelchair. It's very dark, it's very perverse, it's not for everybody, but it was like a welcome return to a kind of dark genre, which is, to me, totally missing on Netflix, on, on the BBC, and on American mainstream television, everywhere. So that's really worth seeing. Mm. It's quite a short series. It did okay, but it wasn't a huge hit. And then something that didn't do okay, but I thought was kind of brilliant, which was a very, very dark gangster crime, a psychological and violent thriller. And it was called A Model Family. Mm. And it was a classic thing of a guy who's in trouble. Uh, he's a professor. They've got a kid who needs very urgent medical, expensive treatment. And somehow, by accident he comes in possession of a couple of million dollars, mm -hmm. which is very dark gangster money. And both the police and the gangsters now are tracking him. And he ends up having to work for them with a wife who's going to divorce him and so on. And this is so dark, so wonderfully sort of genre shot and lit and has some very violent scenes in it. But I mean, pure, if you like, if you like Korean violent That's drama, you know, cutting violent. off of secateurs, cutting off fingers, you know, like, but I'm sure you do know the answer to this. Let's do another finger. No, I don't know. They've got the wrong guy. And this is on Netflix. It's on Netflix, but it's so buried. I might check this out. Actually. It's so buried. That's why I actually had to look it up because I couldn't remember the name of it. I had okay. to type in a drama about so-and-so, so-and-so. It sounds interesting. It's really good. Oh, okay. It's episode by episode. It's like, oh, my God, where are they going to go with this? You know? <laughs> and it gets darker and darker and darker for them. Okay, good. And again, a fantastic ensemble of actors. Everybody's good in this drama. And the bad guys in Korean dramas are very convincingly bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in their films, I've always found them to be you, sort of... You wouldn't mess with them. No, no, no. You know. But I wanted to actually go back to something and uh, ask you. You've directed love scenes in mm -hmm. several of your films. And what what's that like? What's directing a love scene like or an intimacy scene? As a director and for the actors? Mm. Really difficult really difficult and it's compounded by the number of people who are around but then if you reduce the number of people you enter an area of perversity like you're you the director are then very exposed you don't have your protection of like 20 people like who are so not sexy around you you know what i mean like mm. crew members who are just like doing their thing I mean, if you're writing a novel you're you're alone in a room if you're doing a painting you're kind of like whatever and then i've done you know i have experimented a little bit with a genre where you know um, uh, after 2000 with starting to use um you know the smaller cameras and night vision and things like that and realizing that you don't need a full crew sometimes to shoot a scene like that you could be just three or four people you know but then it does feel very perverse too but at the same time as diane arbus once said unless you're prepared to cross that line yeah and embrace the perversity, you're not going to get a good result. So you have to kind of be also quite brave to do that. People don't think about it in terms of bravery, but it's they're very difficult. It's much easier to do a scene when someone's beating someone to death. Everyone's much more comfortable with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, especially for the actors, that literally yeah. and figuratively, they're, they're naked or mm. they're close to it, and it must be very difficult for them. And men in particular, funnily oh, enough. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know... To put it crudely, it's much easier for a woman to kind of, you know, let's say go through the kind of trope of mannerisms of what what is desire, what is arousal, and so on. 
and then you have you know your shopping list of the hand on the back and the you know the eyes closed and i mean there's always that funny story about david lean saying to um omar sharif you know in a scene in dr Zhivago, where he's supposed to have an orgasm and omar sharif asked him well what, what, what do you want he said well just think asthma attack and that'll do me fine <laughs> and you know that is like yeah you you take away the asthma aspect and you have an orgasm look if you like and so on so it's really really tricky and on the various films the easiest one was probably leaving las vegas because the uh, ending or before that because the ending was heartbreaking well, i mean yeah I'm, I'm just elizabeth shoe you know yeah. so you have an actress like elizabeth and she'll just she'll do anything you want right. within the story to make it work, and and there's no conversation about oh my you know this, like totally fearless. But the you know actors like Elizabeth are are not your everyday actor. I mean, most people are terribly insecure about their body. So you know, usually what I do is I have a separate negotiation and say you know with say the cameraman and the actress usually and say you know what. What are you comfortable with? What do you want to show? What do you not want to show? I mean, Salma Hayek in Time Code was just very, very clear. Mike, come into this room with me. And she said, she showed me various parts of her of her body that she said, this is not to be filmed. You know, I'm a woman. This is like blah, blah, blah. This is good, you know. So you kind of, you know, it's like anything else. You negotiate visually what you can what you can have. You work around that. That's your. That's going to be your framework. And then, obviously, then the acting's something you can't ignore. Oh yeah, I mean, it has to feel truthful. You can't just say, "Okay, I'm going to run the camera for like uh, you guys just do your thing," and then like the famous, you know, blue is the warmest. You know, like two, oh, God, two weeks yeah, to shoot yeah. one love scene or whatever it was, and they, the girls felt both of them, yeah, yeah, not not so good about that. But as I said, I think those days are gone, mm-hmm. um, and in a way. It was useful and necessary to go through the period from the 60s of like opening it up, you know, because all we had was Swedish cinema and Japanese cinema and, you know. uh, In the realm of the senses. In the realm of the senses and then Persona and, you know, various things like that, where they were interestingly beginning to explore the use of nudity and and the talk of sex, if you like. So, yeah. I also think that in terms of where we're heading, like um, worldwide, that the gender fluidity post Me Too mixing together of all these different influences and um, political, socio-political, sexual political aspects combined with the dire situation in the planet, global warming and everything is pushing us towards something where you know we need to focus on things that aren't necessarily so narcissistic and this that mm. and so i think you know i'm, I'm anticipating a separation of the genders in a way like as uh, people take up a, a step back and start reassessing women how they feel about men men how they feel about women feeling about them and so on and, and there will be and it's interesting because it's a very much an organic, not at all planned. It's organic, spontaneous kind of thing. It's mixed up with all these different things. It has to be.